This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the virtual studio are Sally Christie. Hello, hello. And a warm welcome back to Flick Ford, joining Howdy. us again after a cool. week off. <laughs> Sorry, I jumped in. I was so eager. So <laughs> eager to get back. <laughs> hello. Hello. So we're going to dig into a trio of true crime documentaries. Um, We didn't plan this. It just kind of worked out that they're all true crime. I was thinking about this when I was watching all these um, documentaries over the weekend, how we were like, okay, our theme's going to be documentary, and they all ended up being true crime. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) We're just a bunch of creeps. Yeah. (laughs) We're not documentaries about film. It's about crime. (laughs) Um, Very much nails our brand. Um, so firstly, we'll join documentarian Nick Broomfield and Joan Churchill as they revisit America's most well-known female serial killer, Aileen Warrenos, in his 2003 documentary, Aileen, Life and Death of a Serial Killer. Then we'll explore one of the strangest modern true crime stories of recent history in Bart Layton's 2012 documentary, The Imposter. And then we'll look at the real life and ghastly death of B-movie director Al Adamson in David Gregory's 2019 documentary, Blood and Flesh. But now it's time for the Primal Screen News Bulletin for the week. In a move expected by many, the Melbourne International Film Festival has decided to hold an abridged abridged edition of its 2020 festival online, albeit in an unexpected way due to the biggest philanthropic donation in the festival's history. That was philanthropic, that word. Uh, (laughs) Thanks thanks to a donation believed to be in the mid-six figures from property developer and MIF patron Susie Montague, a special online edition of the festival titled MIF 68 and a half, a nod to Federico Fellini's eight and a half, as this year would have been the, uh, the festival's 69th edition. Nice. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The fest can't hear that number without saying that. Uh, The festival was screened somewhere around 80 films, up to 50 of them features, including films from Berlin and Sundance, among other fests, which marks a a difference to many festivals whose online editions have been exclusively showing shorts. Um, Actor, producer, director, and longtime MIF patron um, Rachel Griffiths has been named as the festival's new ambassador. The donation will pay for New Zealand tech firm Shift72 to create a robust digital framework for the features to be screened online to assure to be ravenous audience. 
MIF Artistic Director El Kossar says, this isn't a substitute. It's a creative response to our circumstances. This is a time of experimentation and is very much about finding and fostering audiences where they are right now. Films will be screened on a pay-per-view basis with the most of the films available for the duration of the festival. A small number of sessions will be time-specific, um, Kossar says, to create a sense of the community event. Uh, the program has not yet been finalised, but Kossar says free programs such as MIF Talks will be part of the offering. MIF 68.5 will screen online from August 6th to August 23rd. I'm Our so se- excited about this. I am too. <laughs> I am as well. Yeah. I'm stoked that they're showing features. I'm, yeah. like, I'm eager to know what they've got now. Uh, pretty excited. It's also like I feel like we've really needed some good news this year. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. Have we really? <laughs> it's like no. a little early Christmas present. <laughs> so the Human Rights and Arts Film Festival, otherwise known as HRAF, are excited to announce the launch of Humankind, a seven-day online festival showcasing a retrospective of films that speak to and celebrate the fortitude of the human spirit. Running from the 18th to the 24th of May, the online festival features one recent classic feature or documentary film per day and one theme per film based on a set of attributes that shape and characterise human nature. Whale Rider for tradition, No Time for Quiet for creativity, In My Blood It Runs for language, Tomorrow for perspective, Her Sound, Her Story for community, Backtrack Boys for connection, and Maya Angelou, When I Rise for resilience. The films will feature pre-screening Q&A panels and live artist performances to bring the nightly themes to life in further exploration and shared celebration of human creativity. So that will be Humankind from the 18th to the 24th of May. And finally, two major local productions, TV's Neighbours in Melbourne and American feature co-production Children of the Corn in Sydney, have returned to work. Um, albeit with strict hygienic and physical distancing conditions. Although physical distancing on a TV soap strikes me as somewhat difficult. I know. How are they going to work this? <laughs> I don't. It's yeah. very odd. There's a lot of outdoor stuff, I think. Uh, I've seen a shot Def- of the neighbours shooting outdoors. Everyone playing cricket in the court on Ramsey Street. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's just it. <laughs> like the old opening credits shot? You know, yes. someone takes a catch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, capturing the attention of a local industry looking to get productions going again. Given Australia's strong relative position in regard to limiting the spread of the coronavirus, some industry insiders believe we could be poised to attract a lot more foreign production and co-production as we emerge from the shutdown um, that, uh, I guess, more uh, we expect more business than otherwise might have been the case, although much of this depends on restrictions on international travel being lifted. If Australia does emerge from the pandemic sooner than the rest of the world, particularly the screen industry, the sector wants to be ready with protocols in place to make the cast and crew feel it is safe to work. To this end, the Australian Film and Television Radio School has spent the last couple of weeks consulting with various screen agencies, production companies, broadcasters and unions to develop a 50-page working with COVID document, which went to state and federal health advisors this week for feedback. The hope is that it will be ready for adoption in workplaces within two weeks, although some producers have stressed that each production should look at their own unique set of circumstances and develop their own guidelines. So there you go. I heard that a lot of American soaps haven't been affected by this. They've just, like, worked around, like, Days of Our Lives and things like that. They've just had, like... 
Yeah, they've just had like two characters sort of like building up the tension. They'll be like have them behind glass or have them in opposite sides of the room and stuff like that. What, like Hannibal Lecter? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just slide them through yeah. things for the, the draw. Um, our our panelist, Killer Carl Chapman, who is who it must be said is British, um, says they are his neighbor's Uber fan friend in England tells him that they're using clever camera angles apparently on the set of neighbors to uh compensate for the uh lack of you know closeness, physical Maybe this will, proximity. Yeah, this, this will this pandemic will lead to a whole new way of filmmaking and TV Could making, yeah. maybe. I mean, creative uh, boom. Chris Stenders was um, the Australian filmmaker of Red Dog and and Danger Close. He was saying something similar during the week that mm. it to, to lead to perhaps new processes in in terms of filmmaking and ways to do things for less and smaller. And we've seen that already with like distribution and with all the festivals kind of switching online as well. So it's yeah, mm. different, and different and times. of course film studios releasing their films to buy online mm. as well. Um, so Brave New World is ahead of us. Hopefully, you know, <laughs> we change the stuff that needs changing. Now, please join us in the living room at a, at a safe distance. As many as five of you, no more or less in Victoria. <laughs> not, uh, not, no, yet. No, not, not yet. Not yet, Paul. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> As a Friday, is it? No, Wednesday. 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 Wednesday morning you can do it. Actually, Wednesday, Wednesday at 1am. We're Wednesday. all just giving out completely inc- different information. <laughs> I could have sworn it was tomorrow. Uh, I mean, not that I care. I'm, my partner and I are planning on staying very much by ourselves for the next year. We don't want this to end. Um, now, please join us in the living room as we hit play on our first film for the night. So are you saying that you killed in self-defense or in, in cold blood what do you what do you because you you've changed your story i'm just trying to what are you start talking about change story and what no about whether it was self-defense or not i'm not going to say it you know i'm not going to get in depth about my cases nick aileen life and death of a serial killer from 2003 is a full uh, is a feature documentary film directed by nick broomfield and joan churchill british um so Broomfield and Churchill are creating a follow-up piece to their 1992 documentary of the serial killer Aileen Warrenos, which was called Aileen, the selling of a serial killer. Um, of course, Aileen was a highway um, sex worker who was convicted of killing six men in Florida between 1989 and 1990. Um, returning to her in 2003 uh, on the eve of her execution, um, he uh, in 2002, sorry, uh, the film was shot. Um, in interviewing an increasingly mentally unstable Warrenos, Broomfield and Churchill capture the distorted mind of a murderer whom the state of Florida deems of sound mind and therefore fit to execute. Throughout the film, Broomfield includes footage of his testimony at Warrenos's trial. Sally, as this was your pick of the week, which is totally unexpected as it falls so far outside of your sphere of interest. <laughs> What could possibly have attracted you to this film? Well, I really struggled to pick something for this week, to be honest. My first thing, my my initial choice that I wanted was um, Paradise Lost, the HBO documentary about the West Memphis Three, but it is um, it's it's not easily accessible, so that's why I didn't go with that. Um, the reason why I picked this one, that Eileen Warnos, the life and death of a serial killer, is because I. I think it's a really interesting documentary 
Um, Nick Broomfield is an interesting character in himself. And I think if we're having an episode where we're looking at documentary, he is an important figure, I think, in that world. Um, the way that he kind of injects himself into his own films. I find his work completely enthralling and, and for him to be a pain in the ass at the same time. Like he, um, yeah, it, it's it's hard to describe. I think my fir- the first documentaries that I really started looking at that I loved when I was younger was his, I think, his Chicken Ranch one, which was about um, a brothel in in Vegas back I think that he made in 83 it's quite an older one but this one is interesting because of his previous work with Eileen Mornos and he has developed some kind of relationship with her and we see this through um throughout this documentary and I don't think this is particularly the most ethical of documentaries (laughs) that is out there the way that he um I guess there's stuff that she it really clearly says to him in this film um, that she wants to keep off camera and he doesn't use it that way after she's been executed. Um, and I, I just think it's just, yeah, there's a lot to talk, there's a lot to unpack with this. There's a lot to talk about with the way that he is, um, he's put this together as a film that he doesn't want to, that he's saying that all these people are exploiting her, where I really feel like he's doing the same thing. Um yeah, he's he's really exploiting her at this point. This I think this was released a couple of months after the Charlize Theron film Monster came out. So very much when she was in the public eye. Uh, not to discredit that this documentary isn't good. I think it's a great documentary. Um, I think his relationship with her really sort of shines through and it makes for some excellent viewing. But in a kind of ethical sphere of making a documentary I think it's a really tricky piece of viewing yeah Mm. it's interesting I'm really glad that you picked this I actually don't particularly like Nick Broomfield at all I I have a real (laughs) love-hate relationship with him I I find him really entertaining but I also find him a total pain in the ass yeah but but he was the first of those documentarians to really insert himself into the piece yeah Yeah. pre-Michael Moore even yeah but that's I think that's that is very important in this kind of in this kind of um world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's why I'm really glad for this special on documentaries he's included because I think that you kind of have to I don't know, I feel like actually across all of these films we've chosen it's an interesting range of arrangement of um, different styles and his is very um, if you like him it's great to see him on screen but um, if you don't it's a bit jarring I I actually um, I liked him a lot more in this documentary than I did in um, did you guys see um, Marianne and Leonard oh, oh yeah I've got I've got some feelings on that <laughs> <laughs> mate the number of times that he points out that he used to date Marianne oh. I was like oh mate oh, wow. I couldn't <laughs> Irrelevant to like, anything. That's a whole forci- other story. Though. Yeah, he forcibly he forcibly inserts himself yes. into that in that film so many times. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's that's Nick Broomfield. Um, <laughs> film. This is such a fascinating story, though, and I was really moved by it. Mm. I. Um, it's interesting with documentary. I actually, when we picked the topic for this week, I was 
inundated with ideas. So I actually feel the complete opposite, Sally. I was just like, I feel like there's another 50 films I could have picked for this week. Yep. I really love docos and yeah. especially like when it comes around to film festivals, it's so hard often to get hold of them that might I'd say 90% of watch, what I watch at festivals would be docos. Um, hmm. So I'm kind of on the other side, but I... Um, I really think that her story is so fascinating and I agree there's a lot of really problematic and and not great moments in this but he does show it and he even says at one point I um Aileen didn't want me to see this she didn't realize the camera was on and then that's when she kind of reveals something quite um you know she wants she basically she's begging for the death penalty like she wants to die and um she knows that if she talks about self-defence argument that that will um, prolong her case and it will possibly mean that she won't um, be killed. So it's a really fascinating bind and he very obviously says um, that she was unaware that she was being filmed and recorded at that moment. And, and, and it's also like the very filmmaking practices are brought into question in the courtroom and actually that was what warmed me to him was that courtroom scene hmm. where he's quite funny in that. Yeah, he's excellent in that yeah. scene. <laughs> and he apologises for the film and I just thought it was such a <laughs> filmmaker response. Like, oh, it's not the best, yeah. <laughs> yeah. About that, he yeah. talks about the transfer at one point. Oh, it's not the best <laughs> copy of it, which filmmakers are always doing. Yeah. Like, I don't care. They don't care about yeah. the transfer of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but if you saw it in a HD, it'll be the Blu-ray. <laughs> I think that's what I actually found I liked. I mean, not just Aileen as a character. I mean, she's so fascinating and she's mm -hmm. been through so much. And I felt this deep sadness. I watched this film this afternoon and I just um, had to have a little break afterwards. I feel like she has had such a difficult life and I, I was really impressed with her um what's the word um she just is a survival uh she's she's able to survive all of this and she mm -hmm. kind of still has this amazing strength at her core and um a strange generosity to a lot of people who have wronged her and she was abused from a very young age and I was really amazed with and it might have been slightly um deluded beliefs but she was mm -hmm. very warm towards her family in some some moments and I I felt a deep sadness about the systemic um issues of having people with very severe mental health issues that are not ever properly addressed and also just the broader social issues of a young, very young girl who from a very young age was um, tr treated so badly and had to deal with amazing hardship and then, yeah, and then she's stuck in this really odd legal system where she's basically attacking her defendants. It was bizarre. Mm. It's a great setup, but also as a as a filmmaking side, as a documentarian, it's really interesting. Mm. Um, so I enjoyed this. It's um yeah, it's a great film. It's a bit kind of sort of wandering, and it doesn't really have a clear structure. But I was mm. into it. No, it doesn't. And she's, I think, a yeah, really kind of classic example of somebody that who the system has failed in a mm. major, major, mm. major way. Uh, yeah, and it is. It's a really interesting sort of exploration of the last sort of moments of her life. Mm. And just as an aside, Sally, you also mentioned um, Paradise Lost as um, something you were hoping to include. Possibly a more easily accessible doco would be uh, West of Memphis, which we were talking about earlier in the week, which is um, Amy Berg's doco. So that's yes. another great one. Yeah, Western Memphis is great. That was mm. also that was going to be another one that was on my list for this week, but <laughs> I was kind of trying to spare everyone of the really long run time of it. It goes for I think three hours. So <laughs> 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 
Campus is excellent. Yes. Mm. Yeah, I was not expecting to find this so sad. Mm. It's, it is. It's devastating documentary. It's really um, upsetting. Yeah, and it's uh, it's also a, a sort of a like I, I think a lot of those ethical dilemmas. I think are worth talking about, but also difficult to get around, as you can sort of see, like in order to prove his thesis that, you know, like, like her, like it, it sets up this thing really interesting early where she comes and says, all that self-defense stuff. I was lying. Mm. I was like, oh, we hunted these guys. We killed them. Everyone. And, and I was genuinely shocked because I'd seen the movie and it's in the thing. It's like, but she was attacked. It's like, what, what? And it's like, what? And it's like, no, no, there's gotta be something behind this. The film takes a the film actually takes quite a while to get there. Mm. Like for a while, she's sort of bleeding that, um, which I thought was fascinating in terms of her journey and a structure, and then why she's doing it, and the whole, um, and the whole sort of process of the system coming to bear, and why she's, um, you know, that whole and plus that whole just torpor of being caught on death row and mm. the years of just having to wait to die. Mm. Um, and then you that know, it can get, be a really long process in the US. It's oh, like people are on death row for decades. thirty years. Yeah. yeah, it's insane. Yep. And, and she, she makes a lot of good points about how, and she compares her case to other cases, and it's like, yeah, that is odd, the way in which she wasn't just given a either a death sentence, mm. but just constant, you know, extensions, and it, you know, the psychological damage that would do as well. Yeah. Yeah, and plus that whole thing that always puzzles me about the US system, like when they s- sentence someone for 300 years in prison, like yeah. they're not immortal. Like, like you're not sentencing <laughs> Okay, it's not Lestat. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah, sentencing <laughs> Lestat to San Quentin, you know, it's like just give them life, just the term of their natural life, you know. Um, and so that's what she's saying. It's like, you know, she sent me, th- like how many times do you want to kill me? You know, it's mm. like I'm only going to die once. Um and yeah, and 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 her breakdown towards the end, when she's all these sort of conspiracy theories, and you know, it's it's just really upsetting. Um, and again, like I think it's all worth showing. I think the stuff she says to Nick in confidence mm. goes to help disprove the stuff that she's been telling us earlier. That's key because you know that's sort of hurting her case because that's what she's wanting in order to, it's really complex stuff um it is, yeah it is it's very complicated i was talking um on a, a couple of days ago with isabel pepard who made the was one of the co-directors of the mugana documentary about this documentary mm. and how as a filmmaker when you're focused you have a you know a person that you're focusing on for your as your subject how what ethical issues arrive when you uh, arise when you develop a relationship with this mm-hmm. and how do you navigate this and not make it something where it is exploitation yeah. and how difficult that is as a filmmaker mm. um to you know it, yeah it's hard there's a bit when he um when nick is leaving um he's had a um aileen's gotten very upset with him um for kind of i think quite good reason and he as she's being taken away by the guards he yells out that he's sorry and i was really moved by that i was surprised i kind of liked the fact that that was all included and similar to what you're saying paul like yeah he could have left that out because it's you know we're questioning whether or not Mm. it was ethical but it does kind of show a much richer and broader picture than what we would otherwise be privy to so i think it's important to include it yeah, and they've clearly formed a relationship. Like she's always mm. so happy to see him. Yeah, which is and and there's also this kind of he's always very upfront about when he is being you know 
doing those unethical things. It's not like he's mm. trying to hide it. He's not trying to obfuscate. He's going, yeah, Eileen yeah, said this, but I think it's worth showing. And again, that's an interesting approach. There is quite a bit of transparency there. Mm, I think I had. I think that also it just brings into question when someone has mental health issues. Like she doesn't mm. really have the agency there, though. He has. He has control over that. And even though he's being honest with us mm. as the viewers, she's not aware of that. So I think that's kind of where the line is crossed. But it is. Mm. I don't know. It's a difficult yeah. one. It's yeah, a it is. Area. Yeah, no, it's absolutely um, complex stuff. No, and it's yeah, it's 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 a great doco. Um, mm. So Aileen, Life and Death of a Serial Killer is now available to rent on the DocPlay screen, uh, streaming service, which may come into play in our next segment. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Now pour yourself something nice and come and join us for our second film of the evening. We had no idea what kind of person we were getting. They look very different. He disappeared without a trace three years ago. Tonight, a San Antonio boy is back home. The Imposter from 2012 was the debut feature documentary directed by Bart Layton, who would go on to make his narrative feature debut with the MIF 2018 favourite American Animals. In 1994, a 13-year-old boy disappeared without a trace from his home in San Antonio, Texas. Three and a half years later, he is found alive thousands of miles away in a village in southern Spain with a horrifying story of kidnap and torture. His family is overjoyed to bring him home, but all is not quite as it seems. Flick, as your pick for the week, I'm now wondering, given you were away last week, whether you're the real Flick Ford or a Spanish man. (laughs) Fleeing from the authorities in his home country with a taste for Michael Jackson. <laughs> well, you know what? As a PhD student, I do suffer from imposter syndrome. So hey. it's, it's pretty on point. Uh, yeah, look, this is, I, I love Leighton. I loved American Animals. I thought it was one of my favourite films from that year. And this is also one of my favourite docos. So I had to include it. Um I think the thing I love most about this doco, and I actually haven't watched it since uh, 2012 when it came out, mm-hmm. um, I suppose because it's a twist film of sorts and I don't think that is actually giving it away, surprisingly. Um, I, it's kind of one of those ones where I haven't necessarily returned to, but it really stuck with me and it was great returning to it and it's still being exactly as I imagined it. It is different, of course, watching it the second time. The thing I love about this film the most is that it's hyper-stylized. It's Mm. amazingly cinematic for a doco. And I think that often with docos, the focus is on the subject and the story and kind of how we just how they decide to um, disseminate certain information and things like that. And this film has all of those those kind of elements to it. But it it really has a and rewatching it, it's really solidified this for me. It has a playfulness to it. It's got mm. this this kind of um, this this person at the center who is really um, quite open about what he's done. Um, very direct, like the even the camera angle is just an direct address to the camera, and he he's aware of it. And it's um, there's so many characters in this film where they just seem like a creation. And I think that the the whole um, adage of truth is stranger than fiction is so true for for this. Um, 
Yeah, I really found it um, a, a joy to watch, although it's pretty it's pretty bleak <laughs> in moments. <laughs> I loved the fact that um, uh, there's he talks a lot. Um, so this is uh, Nicholas, the this thirteen year old who went missing in Texas in 1994, and then resurfaces in Spain three three and a bit years later, um, and he he talks a bit about and I don't think this is a spoiler at all but he talks a bit about how he wanted to provoke a sense of guilt for the people who found him and I I loved that sense of like this knowingness and we were chatting um just before about um Aileen the doco on Aileen and I thought that kind of decision of how you're deciding to tell your story and it's so true of filmmaking as well like how do you decide to prompt certain responses from the audience and this, even though it's talking about a true crime situation, it is also true of um, filmmaking. And I, I love that that kind of duality of this. Um, and the, there's just such so many questions. And I love that the film, the filmmaker has been able to elicit these responses from people. There's a real trust there. And the things that they say on camera is really quite remarkable. And it's so such a thrilling film to watch. And I don't know... I feel like it did get a lot of press when it first came out, but if you haven't seen, for whatever reason, haven't seen this documentary, please go watch The Imposter. It is uh, currently on Stan and also I think maybe on Doc Play. I can't remember. I should look that up before going on air. But, um, yeah, it's a oh, it's one of my favourite docos, so please check it out. It was um one of those documentaries that when I was watching, it was like, God, I can't believe that everyone is so all involved in this and is participating the way that they are. But um, I am definitely one of those people. My, my comfort show is Forensic Files, which has really <laughs> bad reenactments, and that's just if I want to sit down and do nothing, I watch Forensic Files. And the one, <laughs> the one thing that I really loved about The Impostum, it's content is really shocking but what you were saying flick is how stylized this is um and it has a lot of reenactments in it and it's so hard to navigate that when you're looking at something in documentary or true crime to not make that cheesy or to mm. not make it look really mm. shitty and it's done so beautifully in this mm. which is really yeah. slick yeah Actually, one of my favourite um, scenes, and I forgot about this and it was great to be reminded of it, is um, at the very end there's footage of um, Nicholas dancing in prison. Uh, well, I'm saying Nicholas in air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so fantastic. It actually reminded me of um, the Joker. Like, Yeah, of course, yes. Mm. <laughs> it had that real, like, yeah. real sense of... Um, Oh, I don't know, tomfoolery, but yeah, also kind of like a sinister. Yeah, yeah puckish. Yeah. Puckish yeah. is exactly it. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, there's this real kind of trust between, you know, everybody that's involved in making this documentary. And yeah, I think that's what makes it so shocking. This was what I was hoping. Um, what's it called? Three Identical Strangers. Oh, yeah. Oh, see, I felt quite lit mm, down by yeah. that. I was hoping Me too. to kind of, you know, as something as revealing as the imposter is. Um, but yeah, it is a it's a it's a great doco and it is. It's it's very it's really sad as well, like incredibly, incredibly sad as to what people will, you know, cling on to for hope. Um yeah. yeah, it is. It's definitely worth checking out for sure. I mean, without going into too much of it, I don't think I've ended a documentary with more questions. Mm. <laughs> there are so many like I have so many questions of everyone involved. 
Like, like particularly the family. Mm. Uh, I had, I, I thought that it was more resolved, like my memory of it, and then mm. I rewatched. I, it. I had yeah. that as well, Flick. <laughs> I, I, I felt like, oh, and then went and rewatched it. Went okay. You know. Yeah, yeah. Wait a minute. Oh, uh, hang on. <laughs> hang on. But, but what about? But yeah. What about? Yeah. And I love that also. M.M. at Walsh from Blood Simple seemed to fuck, seemed to be taking the case. Yeah. <laughs> like Charlie Parker or whatever his name is. Like he, just, he looked yeah, exactly so like M.M. at Walsh from Blood Simple. Um, more ethical though. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I did. Um, yeah, I got a real kick out of this. I just, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's just one of those stories. Like it's just so intoxicating, uh, so interesting. And so, and everybody involved is, you know, there's so many people that are clearly hiding something. Mm. Um, other than the guy at the center who is a complete open book and yeah. tells you everything he's thinking. Mm. Um, which is which is interesting. Um but yeah, the 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 style of this, yeah, the way he said everything is so um beautifully shot. Um and you know it's Again, I mean, a lot of docos play with the notion of, you know, the notion of truth and what is truth and, and, and all that sort of thing. But this one kind of lives that mm. <laughs> through its behaviour. Like, you know, like, and, and, and just what this family, again, what they're clinging on to, what they're willing to believe of mm. this person is just kind of ridiculous. And it's interesting I guess that is it just is it just that people's desperation for hope? Well, like, is it that or something darker? Yeah, it's you know, yeah. like we don't know. It's like when I used to smoke out the backyard when I was a teenager. Did my parents just pretend not to see it, <laughs> even though they knew it was really going on? <laughs> yeah, willfully turning a blind eye. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of shocking though when you see the footage and you're like, how did anyone? Yeah. <laughs> and even he is like, yeah. This wow. is ridiculous. <laughs> but then, you know, the stuff he continued to do later, and it's just all like, like it was clearly a, yeah, I can't say anything. Just see this doco. Um, so The Imposter is now streaming on Stan and Docplay and is available to rent or buy via iTunes rentals and and, oh, and uh, YouTube rentals. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flickford, Sally Christie, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Now, if you'd like to grab the microwave popcorn and join the currently one or two, but soon to be five members of your household <laughs> for our last film of the evening. This story reads like the plot of a bad horror movie, except this is real. And the victim, believe it or not, was a horror film director. Blood and Flesh, The Real Life and Ghastly Death of Al Adamson from 2019 is the third feature documentary directed by David Gregory. An August 1995 headline in the Los Angeles Times screamed, horror film director found slain, buried under floor. But the whole truth behind Al Adamson's strange life and gruesome death reveals perhaps the most bizarre career in Hollywood history. From his early years as the son of a Kiwi silent screen cowboy, through the production of over 30 lurid low-budget pictures, including Satan's Sadists, Dracula vs. Frankenstein, and the Naughty Stewardesses, to his grisly demise, the L. Adamson story remains wild beyond belief. From one naughty stewardess to a Satan's Sadist, Sally, was this journey through L. Adamson's life and death a trip worth taking? 
Oh, definitely. I really wanted to see this when it was playing at Monster Fest last year and I didn't get around to it. So I'm so glad that you picked this this week, Paul, to watch. Um, This is so well done. I love um, exploitation cinema. I love seeing, uh, you know, any sort of documentary about how exploitation cinema is created and made because I just think it's completely fascinating um, how this was all put together. It, the first half of this film made me feel like I was watching the Incredibly Strange Film Show, Jonathan Ross. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it may be an episode on Russ Meyer. And then it really seamlessly becomes um, a true crime documentary. And it's just that kind of the mixing of these two kind of genres works beautifully here. And that was, I, I would watch this either focus on if it was on the focus on the true crime side of it or on the focus on, um, you know, his filmmaking. It is all completely fascinating and put together so beautifully. I, this was such a wild ride and such a great ride in every sense of the word. Yeah. See, now, now that you put it out there, it's almost like fantasy camp for you because it's like exploitation film and true crime. This is like it, it, everything for me. I can't, I can't believe I hadn't seen this before. <laughs> so yeah, I had seen the Imposter and obviously the Eileen Warnos one, but yeah, this was a first time watch for me. And um, you know, I've seen lots of his films before, and yeah, this was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Loved My- it. Me too. My my notes for this week, though, on this film, uh, I'm just looking at them now. Rattlesnake pate, question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> and there's another bit where I've just written concussion giving chimpanzee. Oh my. <laughs> but I think there's something <laughs> that actually sums up the film. It really, it really does. does. But I think there's something so exciting about how exploitation cinema was made. Yeah. Um, it gives me a real rush to see how these films were created and I, people putting their lives in danger to yes. make these films, you know. It's yeah. it's really, I find this stuff really quite thrilling and yeah. um, oh, probably maybe someone might write OK Boomer on my Instagram. <laughs> but That's I, Gen I, I, to you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, love, I love that to see that it, this is all done with practical, you know, effects, mm. things like that. And that's, yeah, I, I love this kind I, of thing. Yeah, and actually I'm, I wouldn't normally sort of count myself as like a massive B, you know, B-movie fan, but mm-hmm. I did, it did remind me or like reignite my love that I have for um, Mexican B-grade films yep. that I just like churned through. I did my um, honours on Mexican cinema and I was like. Is this a call of Santo, the wrestler and Coffin Joe sort of stuff? Yeah, all yeah. of yeah. that stuff. Yeah, right. And they had all of this focus on like Frankenstein and Dracula and I mm-hmm. love the bit in this film when they get the, um, Stockbroker, or was it the lawyer? <laughs> stock, the no, he's yeah. stockbroker. Is he? Yeah, to be the, um, the financier of the year. Yeah, he's like a stockbroker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and he's so perfect. He's so perfectly cast in it. And the re- until he starts blinking constantly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But there's a real. Um, it was fantastic. This is su- you, you're right, Sally. This is a fantastic coupling of true crime and also an ode to 
mm. you know, B-grade expo- exploitation yep. films. And and the re- resourcefulness of Al Adamson is amazing. Like he's able to bring together these films and repackage them, which is what I, my favourite <laughs> bit was Spectrum X, which is a film that they wanted <laughs> to use all this footage from black and white and colour. And they created this little plot twist, which is a machine that basically, um, yeah, changes the, you know, the colour of... Um, Just puts a colour tint yeah, over different yeah, things. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and the colours are all meaningful, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> and I actually genuinely feel like that is such a clever rebranding. And I love the fact that so many of the people involved in these exploitation films, I, I mean, as an aside, a lot of them weren't paid and a lot of them were maybe slightly mistreated. <laughs> How they would be like looking at some film that came out and be like, oh, this looks terrible, and then turn over the back of the VHS and be like, oh, I made this. <laughs> <laughs> it was just constantly these films and this this footage was just constantly being like um, re-released and rebranded. So mm-hmm. I just I think it's a really amazing docker. Um, yeah, docker that I just hadn't I don't know just passed me by. Um, it's such an enjoyable one. Um, so thank you, Paul, for choosing this. Like, no, no worries. Great Look, film. It's it was. It's only screened at Monster Fest here, and then it popped up on Amazon Prime fairly recently. Because yeah, it was last year's Monster Fest, wasn't yes. it? Like it's very recent, and it was my favorite film of Monster yeah, Fest last year. I, and I, I actually I included it. Having a conversation with you about this last year, Paul, I'm like, I can't believe I haven't seen it. Yeah, and it was yeah. on my last year. It was it made my top five festival favorites mm-hmm. that we selected it on our top ten of the year last year because I was just so blown away by the marriage of those two things. It's like it's a great true crime doc. And and it's a great um, – and it's really exhaustive. Mm. Like I like my documentaries. It's weird. In biopics, I like just pick one moment in that person's life and mine that moment and find the person in that moment. When it comes to docos, it's like tick every box. I want it to be this and exhaustive. It's, it's hard to successfully do really that, is. and this film really <laughs> does successfully do that without – making it feel rushed or – No. It, it's, it's really beautifully, beautifully put together. And it's only a hundred minutes long. Yeah. Like it's not that like so, like and the footage they have from you know the true crime element in particular is astonishing. Mm-hmm. Like some of the stuff, like they've got them you know digging up the house to find the remain and like just stuff that's absolutely and also the and also his um the woman who was uh, I think acting as his housekeeper. Yeah, I, felt, I was really moved by her mm. um interview, and I I thought that. They were able to capture that really well. And actually even his relationships, I, I really got a good sense of mm-hmm. his connection to those women. Yep. And um, when it goes into like the UFO stuff, I <laughs> I loved that. Yeah. How, I mean, it, it's got so much in it. Does yeah. anyone know where, so he was filming a UFO film in Australia. Yes. That was never released. Does anyone know where that was being filmed or? No, no. And also, people no. speculating about that. Also, I just know that. in you, you were saying before, Paul, that it was um, a New Zealander. His dad's a New Zealander, but also in the film, they referred to him as an Australian. So, yeah. it's like, what although, is the truth? <laughs> having said that, the the film he's talking to me goes, "Oh, his dad was Australian and made the first Australian western." He's right about the Australian western. He made a film called Stockman Jim. This is not mm-hmm. Al. This is his father, Victor. He did make a film called Stockman Jim in Australia. So he was a Kiwi that made a film in Australia and then went right. to the US. So the dude was half right. Okay. <laughs> and I love like when they're talking about like how much the film made and there's about seven different accounts of it. Exactly oh, I love how much that. Yeah. It's, it's 10 million. The one that gets me yeah. 
there is a great and like there's some really poignant stuff here. In particular, his sec, his his first wife, and and um the his sort of muse, I guess uh, Regina Carroll, going through her story. Like I actually mm-hmm. and I actually could see her like a screen presence that transcended a lot mm-hmm. of the others and a lot of the a lot of the stuff they were making. And I found her passing to be quite poignant. Yeah, um, in in, in the course of the story, but there is one moment that killed me. It's like a stacking of the deck, um, where they talk about the ancient actors who um, he would get, who Adamson would get for cheap at the end of their careers. Mm-hmm. And they talk about getting John Carradine and another guy. Um, is it is it Le- oh, now blanking on the names? Is it Leo Carroll? Mm-hmm. Oh my god, this is terrible. I should know this, um, but there's. Um, but this elder gentleman was being used on set and it was like, and then they found out he couldn't walk. So he had to be in a wheelchair. And then he was looking around and they're like, what are his, what are, what's going on with his eyes? They realized he's got one eye and the other's a glass eye. And then the sound man is hearing this clicking as he's talking and they realize he has loose ditches. <laughs> it's just like this constant one-upping of the joke. Like this man is so decrepit. He's falling apart. It's, it's it's so good. It's so, and that's the thing. It's how is this film? Yeah, both funny and poignant. It's a real ride. I love it so much. So I would, uh, and I'm I'm delighted that I introduced it to you both. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm really yeah. It was yeah. Loved it. Loved it so it's much. It's been a yeah. We were saying off air. This has been an excellent screening week. So please check out all the films we've talked about tonight. Indeed. So that film we're just talking about is Blood and Flesh, The Real Life, so R-E-E-L, and Ghastly Death of Al Adamson. And it's now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. You're listening to Primal Screen. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. We discussed Aileen, Life and Death of a Serial Killer, now available to rent on Doc Play. The Imposter, now streaming on Stan and Doc Play, and able to rent or buy via YouTube rentals and iTunes movies. And Blood and Flesh, The Real Life and Ghastly Death of Al Adamson, now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. Next week, we'll be doing our second Primal Screen director spotlight episode. But on whom? All will be revealed on our social media channels this week. So stay tuned to Primal Screen podcast on Facebook, at Primal Screen film on Twitter, and at Primal underscore screen underscore show on Instagram, you egg. <laughs> a huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast, to Killer Carl Chapman for panelling and providing producing assistance for our show, as well as some much-needed Neighbours intel. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 